Hello, adventurers, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the World of Azuria podcast. My name is Beth Ball, and I'm the author of the Age of Azuria epic fantasy series, which we'll be exploring in this show. In some episodes, we'll be swept away into the magical world of Azuria as I read chapters from the novels and stories. In others, we'll dive into the lore behind Azuria, and I'll answer your questions about the world, characters, and more. If you enjoy epic fantasy worlds, immersive settings, nature-based magic, and vivid characters, then this podcast is for you. In our second season, we're traveling through Buried Heroes, book one in the Age of Azuria series. Today, I'll be reading from chapter two, where Ialith finalizes preparations for her transmigration north. To find out what happens next before new episodes are released every Tuesday, you can purchase Buried Heroes at bethballbooks.com shop or at your favorite book retailer. Let's start our adventure. Elliot felt the tears coming fast and knew she couldn't withstand her mother's response, whether it was an offer of compassion or a harsh correction. She spun away and strode past the doorways of her half-sibling's rooms. Hers had been beside theirs originally, when the four of them returned to live at court years ago. The Duchess took pity on her heartbroken daughter and allowed her to move to what should have been a guest room. It was situated at the end of the family wing, but Elliot couldn't sleep without the sounds of the seaside that had been their home. From the isolated part of the hall, Elliot could hear the infinite ocean pounding against the rocky coast beneath the castle, wave upon wave throwing itself against the cliffs. As was only fitting for the nation's richest and oldest still-surviving family, the Amastasias possessed a beautiful section of Iokeep, second only to the halls of the king and his family. Their portion stretched along the northwestern reaches of the cliffside, rounding out in the beautiful circular room, made almost entirely of windows, that Ielith called her own. She didn't have the ensuite bath, separate visiting room, or dining quarters that the legitimate Amastasia offspring did in their suites. Despite what might otherwise be considered shortcomings in elegance and status, Elliot's room offered her, as unendingly as it could manage, a picture of the outside world. The 270-degree circle of windows looked out on the coastline in the infinite ocean beyond, wrapping around to include vistas of the castle gardens. But if she climbed over her wooden desk, careful not to disturb the pages of notes and open books from her translations with Katerina, Elliot could see ships pulling all the way into port. It had been several years since she regularly studied these arrivals, hoping for a sign of Theodric's return with his parents or, even less likely, a delegation of elves making a tour of the Kaldaran coast. Her hopes for a chance of escape or a new life dwindled slowly as time passed. She still enjoyed the exercise occasionally, and was fascinated by the intricacies of the rigging and crews that she had read about, but never been able to investigate in person. Almost everything in her home kingdom revolved around them, but she was forbidden from going to the docks. Today, however, she would only be able to visit her windows and books briefly before she had to leave them behind forever, and she hurried down the hallway, eager to reach a sanctuary that wouldn't be hers for much longer. Even if she were able to return to Linolin when it was their turn to host the Festival of Renewal every other year, she would stay, she recalled with a shudder, in the guest suites reserved for foreigners and dignitaries. Her door, bleached by the sunlight that caressed it each day, seemed more alive and welcoming than the polished, dark doorways of the other family bedchambers. Elioth glanced over her shoulder before she turned the large iron handle, and the hinges swung open effortlessly to the airy expanse of her chamber. After a row, the duke liked to send the family guard to supervise her activity, and she was sure that one of his private soldiers would be along at any moment. 
She gasped as the open door revealed a tall, gangly figure sitting on her desk, swinging his legs while consuming an apple. Scud, what are you doing here? They're quite serious about a punishment if you're caught again. Scud's easy, cocksure smile answered her concerns as he sprang off the desk. And missed the chance to tell you goodbye? Hang their punishments and pronouncements. I couldn't just let you go now, could I? Shh, Elia said as she checked that the door was shut behind her and carefully turned the lock. The emotions that had been building during her time with Katerina and her rage at the Duke threatened again to overwhelm her in her friend's presence. She rushed forward to Scad's embrace and buried her face in his thin linen shirt. The warm scent of wood chips and the crisp whiff of an apple danced under her nostrils. You know that I'm relieved to see you, right? Scad patted the back of her hair before he released her. I wouldn't have known that exactly, given your alarm. I can't bear the thought of something happening to you on my account, especially as I won't be here to try and help. No offense, Ellie, but in the past, your help has made things worse, not better. She felt a stab of pain at that reminder. Following her and Theodric's attempted escape, Scad was implicated as an accomplice to the fallen nobleman's schemes. After a week, when Eliath was finally allowed to leave her room, she found out that Scad had faced a similar punishment, having been relegated to the servants' quarters and threatened with imprisonment, but given a heavy fine instead. When Eliath tried to speak to the guard on his behalf, their suspicions of his involvement were confirmed, and they locked him away for several more days. Katerina had helped in that time of heartbreak. Many of the guards were smitten with her, so she used that leverage to check on Eliath's friend and bring him small treats from the kitchens. Eliath had snuck the money for the fine to Scad's mother, Celia. The Delarios were incredibly hardworking, but they didn't need unexpected expenses, especially ones that were no fault of their own. I am awfully sorry about that, Eliath said. But Scad, someone's going to be down here any moment to fetch me for the Lyceum. All right, all right. Will you be needing... He glanced around the room. This in your new abode? He cleared his throat and held up an alabaster wolf figurine that Eliath kept on her dresser. She stumbled upon it when she was young on the grounds at Aurora and had kept it ever since. Something about the freedom of wolves spoke to her and, as a child, it had felt like destiny for her to find a pretty trinket that made her think of them and the closeness of their packs. She blinked to clear her eyes before she answered him. I would love for you to have it, Scad. It's not that I'm worried about forgetting you or anything. I just wanted a way to keep you nearby. This is the best I've come up with besides more involved schemes like we attempted before. The finality of their time together, the end of Scad's forbidden visits to cheer her up or bring her news from around the castle, weighed down Eliot's heart and threatened to rip it from her chest. Living in a cage was difficult enough, but at least in this glass enclosure, there were people who loved her. I... Scad, I don't know what else to say. I'll miss you so much. I know you don't believe me right now. But I think you'll figure something out. There's more for you than what they've planned, Ellie. You'll see. She sniffed and looked up at him. I hope you're right, Scan. I'll write to you as I can. Katarina will let you know how I am, too. She's already promised. Now that I wouldn't mind at all, Scad said with a wink. As I failed to win you over, perhaps in your absence, your scholar friend will fall for me. Perhaps she will, Elioth smiled. She felt a light breeze of relief across her jagged internal landscape before the urgency of their present moment returned to her. She shook her head quickly. All right, now it's really time. She closed his fingers over the alabaster wolf. I have a parting gift for you too, Ellie. You too? 
I made this to go with your dagger. He nodded at her bag, well aware that it held the blade he'd brought to her room the night she and Teodric tried to escape. He withdrew a thin, angular piece of wood from his pocket, a sheaf cut in a botanical lace pattern and tied with two thin straps of leather. These can weave through on the side so you can wear it underneath a dress or keep it in your boot. I was thinking about you, and I remembered a story Teodric told me of a woman who lived with a pack of wolves, and that was what she did just in case she lost them somehow and had to survive on her own. Elia traced a finger across the pattern of intertwined vines, marveling at the delicacy Scad had managed to achieve in the inflexible wood. Scad, it's beautiful. Thank you. It's so intricate. I don't know how you kept it from falling apart. She blinked back tears and smiled at him sadly. That story was one of my favorites growing up. From those books. Lady of Canis was the title of the first one, I think. The girl's name was Daphne. He always had a better memory for those sorts of things than me, Scad said. But yes, I think I remember now. Elioth pulled the dagger from her bag. The top of the blade resembled a root structure that grew into the Adamar crest at the hilt, a sprawling golden oak tree with silver leaves. Scad waited breathlessly as Elioth slipped the dagger into its sheath. He sighed as it slid home. Phew, I'm relieved that fit. I didn't want you to think someone had stolen it, so I couldn't come in and take it to measure it and bring it back. He grinned at her. You really do like it, Ellie? I love it, Scad. It must have taken him ages to make in his little free time. Does it work with what you have on? Elioth sat on the end of her bed and unlaced her boot before she tied the dagger's hilt around her calf. The straps were long and thin. It would fit easily over her thigh as well. She retied the boot and stood for inspection. What do you think? A glint of gold winked at her from the top of her boot. She tucked her sock over the exposed hilt tip. Scad grinned. It's perfect. Heavy boots walked down the hall toward her room. You have to go, Elioth whispered. She propelled Scad to the servant's door hidden in the wainscoting. I love you. Don't forget me and know that I'll be thinking of you. He took her hand before they parted. I love you too, Ellie. Be careful now and take care of yourself. Her lips pressed together and turned in a sad smile that mirrored his. I will, and you too. Scad nodded and ducked into the small opening. Elioth walked a slow circle around her room, running her fingers over the grainy surface of her wooden desk and taking in the velvet fur of the patterns on the couches. Halfway to the line of bookshelves that rounded out the circle otherwise made of windows, a knock banged against her door. Lady Amastasia, the muffled voice of either Walton or Rospel called. It's time. Elioth picked up her bag from the bench at the foot of her bed and draped her fur cloak over her arm. Since Hadvar was located so far to the north, she had the excuse of traveling in the leather breeches and corset Henri had made specifically for her. The designer had taken great care in the press pattern of moonshade flowers and ivy that trickled delicately over the set of ladies' armor. Elioth had a jacket that matched as well, but she stashed it in her bag along with a few days' supply of food and most of her gold coins. If the smallest opportunity of slipping away from her family and Lord Stravinsky arose, she planned to take it. Sir Walton, one of the family guard, waited at her doorway and followed as she joined her mother, half-siblings, and stepfather in the receiving room. "'I believe we're all accounted for, then,' said Sir Maroud, the family steward, nodding to the duke. With his liege's permission, he strode forward and opened the main door to begin the procession down to the Lyceum. He peered out for a moment and scowled. "'Are you really going to let her go like that, mother?' 
Lucinda complained to the Duchess with a snide look at Elliot's polished leather boots. She makes us look quite common. Lucinda, I don't think it would be possible for anyone in our family to look common, Bruden answered. Elioth pretended not to hear them. I believe you're both aware that it's not unusual for women in Hadvar to clothe themselves in a wide variety of ways on account of the climate, the Duchess replied. She didn't look at any of her children, but kept observing Maroon's vigil. So it's to impress her new husband, then, Lucinda gloated. Elioth clenched her jaw, determined not to respond. That will do, both of you, the Duke snapped from beside his wife. His Majesty's guard will be here any moment, and I would have you represent the dignity of this family. The sound of marching feet rising and falling punctuated the Duke's proclamation and hushed any retort from his offspring. Elioth knew better than to think the Duke was coming to her aid, but she noticed, as the royal guard approached, that he seemed unusually fidgety. Calderon had become the right hand of the king thanks to his conniving nature and cool demeanor. He was anxious about something, which was far outside the norm. The sight of the armor-clad dwarf proudly leading his troops interrupted Elioth's reflections. Stormguard Basha, the head of Linolin's military and the king's security, strutted proudly in the center of the two lines. He raised a hand and called down the hallway, first to Sir Marud and second to the duke. Their graces Amastasia stepped forward once he arrived. Basha gave a short bow to the duke and bent to kiss the duchess's proffered hand. It is our great honor to escort your family to the Lyceum for your transmigration to the Festival of Renewal this fine morning, Basha said with a smile. You bestow upon us great honor, the Duchess replied. Would you be so kind as to walk with me? Calderon asked the storm guard. I'd be happy to, sir, if you'll allow me just one moment. Troops, he said with a glance to his front ranks. Proceed. Basha waited at the doorway for the family to begin filing out. Ellie, so good to see you, he said as Elioth stepped up beside him. They walked together out of the Amastasia Hall. Basha was only a few inches shorter than she, and he held out his elbow gallantly for her to take hold of for the procession. Are you doing all right, miss? He kept his voice low so as not to be overheard by the rest of her family. Basha was less than skilled at whispering, but the clanking of boots against the stone floors helped to mask their conversation. That's so kind of you, Basha. Thank you. I... I'm all right. I asked the king for this assignment personally, so you might have some friendly faces seeing you off. Elioth grinned. Well, that certainly makes me feel better. You're very thoughtful. It's one of the things I shall dearly miss. Aye, and I shall miss you as well. The lads always did better in their training on days when you came to visit. I am not sure about that, but I'll take the compliment all the same. She lowered her voice. Thank you for all of your help. I'll do my best to put it to use as I can. See that you do, Basha said with a wink. He patted her hand and stomped forward to catch up with her stepfather. The Duke's nervousness didn't seem to have eased with the Stormguard's arrival, and Elioth watched the twitches of his shoulders as he and Basha spoke. She could only overhear pieces of their conversation at first, but as they reached the larger halls that descended into the old keep, she caught more. This change in his majesty is... Nothing to do with my station... Lord Nassark is still so little informed of the larger in the kingdom. He's only recently returned from Nocturne. Why has he advised that troops be made ready before we've even spoken to our allies? Basha's voice was less subdued. You heard his report on the regiments amassing outside the Jorgen's northern estate, same as I did, Basha answered. That's within Linolin's regional borders. The king cannot simply sit by. 
I only wish to suggest that we look into it further. These disappearances in the mountains, whole villages slaughtered. There could be... They're not monsters. I do as the king orders, your grace. My men are looking into it, and whatever evidence they find, they'll be sure to send back. Yes, very well, the duke said. Thank you, Stormguard. Calderon stepped ahead to take his wife's arm. Elith couldn't make sense of what she had overheard. The duke had been on edge since Lord Nazark's return a few weeks before. Was he suddenly out of favor with King Arontis, who had trusted him beyond reason for years? Surely he couldn't be afraid of someone doing to him what he had done to Frederick Adamar, Theodric's father, sending him against his wishes across the infinite ocean, never to be heard from again. Groups of guards paraded about the castle center. They patrolled the keep's ancient hallways as though they still operated in the time of war the stronghold must have been constructed for. On the lowest level above the dungeons, an elite group supervised the goings and comings of the transmigration circle. There were very few instances of this powerful ancient magic still functioning in Azuria. A century ago, Hadvar's mages had been able to restore the function of their own circle. Linolens was used only rarely, and had yet to succumb to the unworkings of time. No records remained of how the circle had been made, or how, given enough of a magical charge and a precise inscribing of runes, it could transport a group of people from one place to another almost instantaneously. Several millennia ago, an advanced civilization had created the Transmigration Circle, one of many, it seemed, that allowed twenty people or more at a time to travel to the linked locations. Lenon scholars, through careful study, had discovered how one might reach Hadvar from its southern neighbor, negating the need for a week's travel across the cold roads that wove in and out of the Stormside Forest. The transmigration guard, set apart by their pale blue doublets emblazoned with a magic circle, found little to occupy themselves during the vast majority of a solar year, but the Festival of Renewal provided ample opportunity for vigilance and a show of their capabilities. In addition to bestowing honor upon Lindelin's nobles, the only people allowed to utilize the transmigration circles, the military tasked these guards with protecting the castle from un any unknown entities that might make their way into the castle through the ancient portal. Katerina and a few of the other high-ranking castle residents stood waiting at the entrance to the ancient chamber that held the transmigration circle. Elia saw her friend's eyes alight once they met hers, and Katerina waited until the first of the royal guard had passed before joining Elia to travel into the Lyceum. The two linked elbows and stepped together through the large, arched doorway to begin their descent. The Lyceum was one of the grandest rooms in Linolin, and possibly all of Caldara. The ancients had carved the room from the cliffside bedrock, a feat made more impressive by the space's enormous size. The ceiling extended more than 70 feet overhead in a series of interconnecting, pointed arches that met above the center of the transmigration circle. On the far side of the chamber, elderly scholars in long robes flitted back and forth between the thick tomes of crackling parchment that explained how the circle might be manipulated to reach different destinations. In the records, Katerina said as she noticed Elia studying their movements, there are references to dozens of other circles, only a few of which we understand. But it has to be true, as I saw inklings in, of it in some of my older research, that at one time the world was much closer, as well as, I believe, more populated than we have any conception of it being today. And why is it that you turned your attention elsewhere? Yaliath asked. We haven't worked together on anything of the kind. It's true, we haven't. I did this work before I moved to Ayokeep. Most of the records I found were incomplete. I believe Erevar is still searching. Lost and destroyed tales of the past are a special interest of his. Yes, I recall, Elioth said. 
It had been several years since Katerina's brother had visited Linolin, but he always had interesting news to report when he arrived. He may travel this way soon. His most recent excavations have him just south of Pinshaw. He'll be very sorry to have missed you. Katerina's brows knit together as she looked at Elioth. Please let him know that I regret not being able to hear about his latest journeys. I hope the two of you enjoy your time together. It will be nice for you to have some company. Elioth cleared her throat and fluttered her eyelids to compose herself. That it shall. But come, let us have one final lesson before you go. They stood together outside the circle and looked at the runes carved into the stone floor. Do you recognize this script at all? It's one of the arcane scripts, but I don't believe it's of elvish origin. Elioth scrutinized the ancient symbols. These here, she said, pointing to the succession of glyphs in one of the smaller circles to their right. They are the elements, are they not? Fire, water, air, light, darkness, and earth. Very good. Now, why do you think they're positioned inside the circle in this way? Equally spaced from one another? Yes, or why in this circle and its interlocking position with the larger one? Yelieth, the Duchess called. They're nearly ready for us. She tightened her grip on Katerina's arm. We also need to ask why a circle, Yelieth added quickly. Or I think that's what you would say, Katerina nodded. Yelieth squinted up at the tiled ceiling and its sweeping arches. There's something about these circles, this room that meant direction, or at least where one wanted to go. The pale blue runes along the outer edges began to glow. We often think that the straightest path is one of progress, but circles represent completion and restoration. Maybe the ancients would see it as a different way forward that we too readily ignore or dismiss. I think you are right about that, Katerina said. The tears in her eyes danced in the runes pulsing light. Take care, my friend. Write to me. I will. Elioth couldn't let herself say anything more, so she hugged Katerina a final time and went to stand beside her mother at the end of their family line. They faced the row of soldiers overseeing the send-off. Elioth glanced over her shoulder at her friend and felt the amulet's warm glow against her chest. In moments like this, when her heart was racing, it seemed like the metal and gemstone absorbed some of her energy and sent it back to her. But in this instance, it continued to grow warmer, almost uncomfortably so on her bare skin. Elioth reached beneath her tunic and withdrew it. Hold still, please, one of the guards called from beyond the circle's limits. The woman's voice sounded as though she were shouting through water. The Duchess glanced down at Elioth, a reprimand on the edge of her lips, but her mother's eyes widened instead as she looked at the amulet. Elioth turned from the red glow on her mother's face to find its source at her fingertips, burning. Rays of light stretched glittering fingers out of the ruby, and the metal grew too hot for her to hold any longer. She let go, and the necklace floated in front of her, raising parallel with her chest. Wait, Elioth heard, impossibly elongated, tinged with worry and fear, drifting toward her from her mother. How did she sound so far away? The golden bands began to spin. The additional diamond in the center of the hourglass blinked in and out of existence as Elioth stared, transfixed. The runes on the stone floor around them throbbed in the same instant that a bright red flash erupted from her necklace. Elioth's ears filled with a disembodied, horrified scream. All the world around her turned black, and the intense compression of transmigration began. 
Thank you so much for joining me for today's adventure through Buried Heroes in the world of Azuria. If you'd like to find out more about me or my fiction, you can find me at bethballbooks.com. You can also find my books worldwide at your favorite bookstore or ask your local librarian to add them to the library catalog. To stay up to date with the world of Azuria and be the first to know about upcoming fiction projects, visit bethballbooks.com join. I would love for you to be a part of my reading community, The Story Enclave, and as a special thanks to you for a limited time, you'll receive a free ebook copy of Aurora when you sign up. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at bethballauthor or on Twitter at groveguardian, or you can email me beth at bethballbooks.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Song of Parting, a prequel novella for the Age of Azuria series situated between Aurora and Buried Heroes. You can purchase all of the books in the Age of Azuria series, including Song of Parting and Buried Heroes, at bethballbooks.com shop or at your favorite bookseller. If you enjoyed our time together today and would like to hear more stories set in Azuria, you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash groveguardianpress. Look for the Fae and Damon tiers. We return to Buried Heroes on Tuesday, April 20th for Chapter 3. The theme song for this podcast was created by Garrett Rose of The Bardic Inspiration, who you can find on Instagram or Patreon at The Bardic Inspiration. Happy travels, and I hope that we'll be adventuring together again soon.